Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So this morning, I have to confess, I were looking at Isaiah 53, and uh, as I was writing, as I have been writing this message all week, uh, I kind of realized that it was becoming two messages. <laughs> um, partially because uh, there's so much that uh, corresponds to the Gospels that to move from Isaiah to pulling forward to where does this, where does the full, you know, kind of prophecy fulfillment, prophecy fulfillment, um, it, it just gets to be too much. So um, I actually want to do something a little different this morning. What I want us to do is to look strictly at the Gospels first, set the stage, look at what is going on, particularly in and around the trial of Jesus. And then that will, I think, make it fresh and clear to us so that next Sunday when we come to Isaiah 53, um, those, you know, most of us will have been here this week and will also be there next week, then it will be clear. And I won't have to do so much bouncing back and forth. It kind of consolidates the message for next week. So I actually want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 this morning, Matthew chapter 26. And... Um, I want us to look at a very specific scene in our Lord's trial that has weight and glory, I think, will, will allow us to set the stage for Isaiah 53 uh, next Sunday. And I want to look at verses 57 to 68. Matthew 26, and look at verses uh, 57, and we'll look, we're going to go down through verse 68. I'll just read these verses for us. He says, Now those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, Well, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, you Christ, who is the one who hit you. Now, I want to set the stage here. Remember, this is Thursday of the Passion Week. And at this point, the disciples have already celebrated the Passover um, in the upper room. They've gone out after celebrating the Passover, and they've retreated to the Garden of Gethsemane. And our Lord has been in fervent prayer and anticipation of what's unfolding even in this narrative. And in verses 47 to 56, the preceding verses to what we just read, uh, Matthew records that Judas, who had slipped out earlier in the evening, had led a large crowd 
of Roman soldiers along with officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees out to arrest Jesus and to seize him and to bring him uh, uh, to the high priest. And from there, we see Jesus's trial unfold, and it actually unfolds in six distinct parts or phases. Um, you can break those down into two uh, sets of three. So there's kind of a Jewish phase to Jesus's trial, and there is a Roman phase to Jesus's trial. And I just want to review that so we kind of get our bearings. Uh, the, the first phase of the Jewish part of the trial um, was before Annas. As we learned in Equipping Hour, Annas was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. The high priesthood had morphed at this time into basically a political position. It was really no longer a position of spiritual leadership. Um, it had changed hands, and it really didn't function in any way like the law had desired. And so Jesus went to, to Annas, and uh, he was kind of inspected by Annas, and Caiaphas sent Jesus to his father-in-law, mostly as a favor, as kind of a courtesy. In fact, in John uh, 18 and verse 19, we see, um, we see described here that uh, he says, the high priest then questioned, Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. We can think of this part of the trial, this kind of part one of the Jewish phase is more of like a grand jury hearing. Um, grand jury doesn't determine guilt or innocence, but they are uh, rather there to see if there's enough evidence to move forward. And that's kind of what was going on in this first stage. And, and it ends with um, a, a nameless official striking Jesus and, and rebuking him. And then Annas sent Jesus back to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And that leads us to the second part of the trial. This is Caiaphas then... Um, before a portion of the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin are the, the body of leaders, both Sadducees and Pharisees. Only a portion of that group is, um, is meeting at this second part two here, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And then the third phase is Caiaphas before the whole Sanhedrin. Um, it happens early in the morning, and this became the full hearing to see if Jesus was uh, really guilty, if he was really... Uh, and, and the thing that they were most concerned about was to determine if he was a blasphemer. Obviously, we just, we just read some of that. But the Jews had a problem, and that is that they couldn't carry out capital punishment. They didn't have the autonomy to prosecute and punish Jesus the way they wanted for, religious, for a religious infraction like blasphemy. So in the morning, they brought Jesus to the person who might be able to help them. And of course, we know that was Pilate. And so Pilate becomes the kind of part one of the Roman phase. So we've got, we've got three phases of it were Jewish, and then three phases uh, are, are, um, are Roman. And Pilate was the governor, regional governor, and he, uh, they brought him to uh, Pilate, the Jews did, to try, not to try him for blasphemy, but Pilate, he could care less about blasphemy. They were concerned about showing that he was a seditious uh, conspirator, that trying to overthrow Rome. And in Luke's gospel in chapter 23, uh, at the beginning of verses 1 and 2 there of uh, Luke 23, it says, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him, Jesus, to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. 
So there, from there, Pilate questions him. And after questioning him, he wasn't overly concerned. And so uh, seeking to curry favor, he sent him over to Herod Antipas. That's kind of part five. And Herod took a chance uh, at him, see if he could get him to do something interesting. Um, and then uh, he began to poke fun and mock him. And, but Herod just thought he was kind of crazy. And so then he sent Jesus back to Pilate. And that kind of concludes the Roman phase. But as we know, uh, the people refused to let Jesus go. The Jews were, were fixated in their hatred and their animosity, and they insisted that Jesus be put to death. And so from there, Pilate, kind of being a weak man, uh, relented and, uh, and then uh, cons- you know, agreed to go along with what they wanted. And that, of course, led to, leads to the crucifixion. But for our time this morning, I want us to come back to, to part two of the Jew, in the Jewish phase of his trial, where Jesus stands before Caiaphas and just a portion of the Sanhedrin in verses 57 to 68 of Matthew's gospel. Because what transpires in this scene in the middle of the night is significant and worthy for our consideration of Isaiah 53, as well as just understanding um, Uh, what was going on in Jesus' day. In hauling Jesus before Annas and then now Caiaphas, the, the objective, the goal of the Jews is to try and trick Jesus, to um, corner him into saying something that they could use to incriminate him, to put him to death. And the hope was, is, is, is just like, um, like an interrogation, if they can just pepper him with enough questions that somehow he will um, say something that can be used as ammunition to um, be able to put him to death. But Jesus is not playing along. Their questions of Jesus are being met by his questions. I will answer your question with another question. And it becomes an exercise in futility as we read the gospel narratives. They're like a person who keeps plugging numbers, addition problems into a calculator, hoping that maybe, just maybe, next time it's going to return a wrong answer. But it just doesn't happen. It's not going to happen. And so their only option, really as a last resort, is the scheme that involves basically hiring false witnesses, people who will testify against Jesus Um, in a way that is incorrect. In fact, we see this in verse 59. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. This is an, it's, it's, it's a testimony to how debased their minds are because not in this whole crowd, there isn't one person who stands up to say this is wrong, that this is a violation of our law, God's law. But in a stroke of, I think you could call it providential irony, even as they tried to obtain false testimony about Jesus, they couldn't do it. (laughs) Uh, Verse 59 says, they kept trying. In other words, it's in an imperfect uh, tense. They just, over and over again, they tried to obtain false testimony. Why were they continually trying to obtain false testimony? Well, Mark's gospel tells us in Matthew, Mark chapter 14 that their testimony was not consistent. The reason they kept you know, plodding away at this task to obtain false testimony is because no one could agree. These false witnesses were likely interviewed on an individual basis, but when they'd hear what they had to say, they weren't saying the same things, sometimes even contradicting and conflicting with one another. 
And so, in a sense, we see divine providence presiding over and baffling their sinful efforts. But what about when it seemed like their scheme uh, it was falling flat? What, what are they to do? And verse 60 tells us that they did not find any false testimony, even though many false witnesses came forward. But then the tide turns, and the end of verse 60 says, but later on, two came forward. And uh, the, the, the point is this, in Mark's gospel kind of fills in some of the details. This is we, and they, they said, this man stated that I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So again, we, we looked at this in equipping hour, but in Mark's gospel, it says, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And then Mark's gospel says, but not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So there's just, just a hint of, of congruence there, and it begins to uh, get, uh, they seem like they have something that might work. They find two witnesses who are kind of in agreement. And even though they don't totally agree, the Jewish leaders likely thought, okay, this is something we can work with. This is something that we can build off of. And to wrap our minds around this turn of events and the significance of them, we need to go back to the original circumstance in which Jesus said this, made the statement about his tearing down the, the temple and rebuilding it in three days. So I want you to, uh, the situation that the witnesses are testifying about is an attempt to indict Jesus with a criminal charge. And that situation looks back to early on in Jesus's ministry. Back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he went up to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover. And when he came into the temple, what he saw was every kind of greedy scheme you can imagine, um, taking, taking advantage of the Jews themselves. The whole temple operation was, was kind of a money-grubbing mess. You know, religious officials uh, were traveling. It, it, people had to come from outside Jerusalem. Most of the people came from outside Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they didn't bring all the animals with them for the sacrifice. They just bought them on, on scene. And so in order to purchase them, though, they couldn't use the Roman currency because it had the image of Caesar on it. And so they had to exchange it for uh, basically temple currency and then purchase the animals. Well, that exchange rate was intentionally egregious. It was meant to extort the people. They were getting a terrible exchange rate on this. And all these money changers were, of course, enriching themselves. They had turned God's temple, this place of worship, this place of communion, this place of of fellowship with the true and living God into um, basically a, a business for selfish profit. In fact, the temple complex was, was collo- in a, kind of a, a colloquially known as the Bazaar of Annas. In other words, it was such a, a shameless sideshow that they actually, everyone knew what it was and, uh, and almost made fun of it. And of course, we know that Jesus cleansed the temple. He did that at the beginning of his ministry and he does it again at the end. But here at the beginning, he makes a whip, he turns over the tables, and after shutting down this operation, at least temporarily, he gave a forceful rebuke, and it was something that they had never seen before, never experienced. As you can imagine, that wasn't something they were excited to have happen to them. It wasn't well received, and there was pushback. There was pushback. 
What Jesus did was nothing short of amazing and and terrifying. And so the Jews confront him and they ask him, what qualifies you to reform God's house in the worship of God? Why would you, you know, who are you to do this? They demanded to know what authority Jesus had to do what he had done. What right do you, Jesus, have to supervise, to reprove, to reform what's going on in God's temple? And in John chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They asked Jesus, as they would throughout his ministry, over and over again, for a sign. They wanted a sign. Jesus, show us some supernatural work, some miracle, some work of God that demonstrates that you have heavenly authority to do what you're doing and say what you're saying and for us to trust you. This is what the Jews did. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul actually points it out. He says, the Jews constantly seek for a sign. And it's important to note how Jesus responds here. Does he call down fire from heaven? Does he transfigure before them? Does he summon a legion of angels to demonstrate his authority? He doesn't do any of that. Notice what he says in verse 19 of John this gospel. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay. Now for us gospel readers, John leaves no doubt about what Jesus was talking about, because in verse 21 he gives us the commentary on what Jesus had said. In verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. But for those who were there, the significance of Jesus' answer wasn't clear at all. In fact, it wasn't even clear to the disciples, verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. But for them, it didn't make sense at the time. Even the disciples didn't grasp the significance of Jesus' response. The Jews demanded to know what authority Jesus has from God to cleanse the temple, to rebuke them. And they ask for a sign. And Jesus gives them this very cryptic answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He just kind of drops this red-hot coal and lets it smolder in their hearts. He's just waiting for the God-appointed time for his words to either incarcerate or illuminate their souls. Now set aside the inspired commentary from John and, and just look at what Jesus actually says. Imagine you were there with those people on that day and heard Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What would that statement have conveyed to you? Obviously, it should have been plain to all that Jesus was speaking somewhat cryptically. That, they were, that he was probably speaking some kind of spiritual mystery. The way he's talking isn't meant to overpower their skepticism, um, and, and he's not trying to demonstrate his own authority beyond a shadow of a doubt. Rather, he's trying to get them to come to him. He's trying to draw them in to solicit more information. He wants them to inquire more about who he is and what message he is about to preach. It was a test. Jesus' response, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, is constructed not as a sign or a token, not just as a sign or a token or a seal, but as a test. 
It is a test of God's calling upon their hearts or their corruption of heart. How they would deal with Jesus' words was a litmus test of what kind of hearts they had toward God himself. In fact, Jesus himself in his whole life and ministry is in a sense a sign or a test because he draws hearts to him, calling them in his grace, and he repulses those whose hearts are carnal, whose hearts are dead in their trespasses and sins. Uh, Paul puts it this way. To one, he says, Christ is an aroma of life to life. And to another, the same person, the same life is an aroma of death to death. When he was brought to Simeon, for example, at the... uh, when he was just eight days old and presented before the temple, Luke's gospel says that Simeon blessed Mary and Joseph, his mother. Uh, Behold, and he said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul. And here's the reason that his life would be this. He says, To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus' life was a litmus test, whether it was the feeding of the 5,000 or healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath or making the lame man walk who had been lowered down through the roof. Again and again and again, there were some who were drawn to Christ, believing on him and receiving his message. And at the same time, there were many, many more who doubted him, who rejected him and reviled him. Spurgeon says the same sun that melts the wax is the sun that hardens the clay. And that analogy is fitting. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 in verses 7 and 8 that Jesus is a precious value for you who believe. He is the chief cornerstone, but for those who disbelieve, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's either the stone you build your house upon or the stone that you trip and fall over. He is both. And so when Jesus appeals to his own death and resurrection by saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he does so with intentionally enigmatic language as yet another sign to sift and to separate the wheat from the chaff. As we said earlier, he just drops this red-hot coal in their midst and lets it smolder in their hearts. And it it sat from that point on for, for years, as we come back to the text in Matthew chapter 26, here at Jesus' trial, we see that at the God-appointed time, Jesus' smoldering words break out to incarcerate or illuminate their hearts. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. Because Christ himself, and particularly his preaching about his death and resurrection, were a sign to sift and to separate. And it unmasked the corruption or the calling upon every human heart. And I want to break this text down into, into you know, four sections this morning. Four sections. Uh, we're going to see four ways that Jesus sifts and separates hearts either confirming that they're corrupt or confirming that they are called of God. Jesus' preaching about his death and resurrection unmasked the corruption of their hearts, first, by showing that these individuals who were at the trial weren't seeking understanding, but reasons to scoff. 
That's the first kind of point in our outline. They were not seeking understanding, but they were seeking reasons to scoff. For the better part of three years, Jesus had been traveling throughout Israel, preaching and teaching about the kingdom, performing miracle after miracle. And if there was any confusion about Jesus' divine authority at the beginning of his ministry when he said what he said in John 2, when he cleansed the temple and he said, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up, all that confusion was inexcusable at the end of his ministry. They'd already seen more than enough evidence to decide who he was and what authority he had. If they had been fair-minded, if they had been honest, their consciences would have acknowledged the righteousness of what he had done at the temple that it needed to be cleansed and restored. Their consciences would have been convinced that he was nothing like an ordinary man in the way that he spoke, from the dignity of his demeanor to the calmness of his spirit to the reasonableness that pervaded his actions. All of it testified beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was no lunatic. He was no fanatic. If they had submitted their hearts to Jesus with respect and humility, he would have patiently and meekly taught them the meaning of his words. He would have taught them that the temple, the physical temple that they worshipped at, was really a shadow. It was a shadow of the substance of a temple made without hands. That the real temple, the point of meeting, that's what a temple is, the point of meeting between God and man was the fleshly body of the Son of God. And that the true temple, it wasn't just a symbol of God's presence like the physical temple was. It was, in fact, the very fullness of God's presence in bodily form. He would have taught them that in the temple of his earthly body, God himself would make an offering and a once-for-all sacrifice that would fully and finally remove the guilt of sin that millions and millions of temple sacrifices could never have taken away. And he would have taught them that in the offering of himself as the sacrifice for sin, he would vanquish sin and death and on the third day rise again, becoming a spiritual fountainhead of new and risen life for all who would believe on him. But but Jesus' words didn't fall on good soil. They fell on stony ground. And his actions and his preaching only provoked more and more rebellion in their hearts. They were literally hell-bent to put him to death. They had been plotting to do that for some time, and with that goal in mind, they looked for any testimony, any way that they could confirm what they already believed, that he was a threat and he must be neutralized. They weren't looking for a sign to gain understanding or to strengthen their faith. They were determined to hold back their trust and went looking for reason after reason to scoff and disbelieve. Back in John 2, they asked him for a sign, and Jesus gave them one. What was their response? They took him literally, and they scoffed. They said, you're going to rebuild this temple in three days? You know, this thing took 46 years to build. What if Jesus had given them a time frame that would have been believable? 25 years instead of three days. That wouldn't be a sign of divine authority, right? Any finite human being could have done that. They asked Jesus for a sign. He gave them a sign, and they scoffed, which unmasked and revealed the corruption in their hearts. 
So they were not seeking understanding, but reasons to scoff. Secondly, Jesus is preaching about his own death and resurrection, unmasked the corruption of their hearts by showing the longer they rejected, the more they sealed their fate. The longer they rejected him, the more they sealed their fate. You remember when Jesus first said that, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He said that years before. He dropped it like a coal that just continued to smolder in their hearts. And it just kind of sat there for years. But here at Jesus' trial, it burst into flame again to play this unexpected part in hardening hearts to judgment. Back when Jesus first uttered those words, they reacted by basically saying, eh, he seems a little crazy. I don't understand what he's talking about. But they didn't, they didn't think he was a blasphemer. But three years later, they dragged those same words out of their hearts at his trial to do what? To have him killed. To have him put to death. Jesus is preaching about his resurrection and his death and resurrection, not only emerge at this sham trial before Caiaphas, but they come out again in Matthew 27, at the scene at the cross in chapter uh, 27 and verse 39. And those were passing by as Jesus hung upon the cross, were hurling abuse at him and wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down off the cross. The longer Jesus' words sat in their hearts, the more they pulled them out, attempting to dismiss and to discredit his authority. The more awful and deadly and calcifying those words become, in a sense, sealing their fate. Who would have thought that something Jesus said three years before would burst into flame and drive their souls into deeper and deeper bondage to their sin? Who would have thought that something Jesus said three years earlier would be called to mind at Christ's darkest moment upon the cross when he becomes a curse for sinners? They thought they, thought they were wielding Jesus' words against him to his death, but in reality, Satan was wielding it against them, confirming their judgment. Jesus' preaching about the resurrection showed that the longer they rejected him, the more those same words sealed their fate. And we said earlier that Jesus' preaching about his death and resurrection were meant to sift and to separate. Some, to some, his words incarcerated their hearts. It revealed their rebellion and their corruption. But for others, it had the opposite effect. For others, his words illuminated their hearts, revealing that they were born of God by his mercy and grace. The preaching of the resurrection unmasks not simply a heart of rebellion, but it shows thirdly that God's word is true, though every man is a liar. It shows that God's word is true, though every man is a liar. And we see that back in our text in verses 62 to 63. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. The Jewish officials 
efforts to solicit false testimony, to use his words against him, made clear that they were only interested in one thing. They wanted to find him guilty. And as all these accusations are flying around, Caiaphas finally stops and turns to Jesus and says, what do you have to say for yourself? You know, we've been saying all these things. What about you, Jesus? And notice our Lord's response. He kept what? Silent. He kept silent. Why? Why does he keep silent? Well, I mean, on one level, the charges aren't worthy of response. So that's certainly a part of it. But I believe it's even more significant. Jesus is silent in fulfillment of divine scripture. He is silent in fulfillment of divine scripture. Isaiah 53, which we'll look at next Sunday, prophesies about the suffering servant, the Messiah, who would stand in the place of sinners. And what does it tell us? Isaiah says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus, as a prophet, Jesus was obligated to speak and to speak openly about God's word. But here, as our great high priest, as he's about to make himself a lamb of God to atone for the sins of his people, he is what? Silent. He is silent, just as Isaiah said he would be. But it's not just Isaiah's words. The mouth, the, I mean, it's Zechariah's words. And Zechariah 6, 12 said that the messianic branch would rise up and rebuild the temple. In Zechariah 6 and verse 12, it was God's word from Micah, the prophet, who said that he would be born in Bethlehem. That would be the place of Messiah's birth. And dozens and dozens of other prophetic words about Jesus, which Matthew calls forward and John calls forward, they all show how Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God and that he's trustworthy. False witnesses can twist and distort and ignore God's word until they're blue in the face, but it does not change the reality that God's word is true. It is true, and it is trustworthy, though every man on earth be a liar. And of course, we know that later on, after the resurrection, his disciples remembered what he'd said. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John said, they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. The same words that incarcerated the, the, the false teachers and the, and the chief priests and the scribes are the same words that illuminated the hearts of God's people. Jesus is preaching about the resurrection, unmask God's calling on human hearts, fourthly, by showing that what men meant for evil, God used for good. What men meant for evil, God uses for eternal good. After Caiaphas invokes God as witness to compel Jesus to confirm his identity, then and only then does Jesus respond. And um, you see that in verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus' response is a yes. Are you the Messiah? And the answer is unequivocal in verse 64. That's a yes answer. 
And when he tells them that going forward, he and others in the room will see that he is in fact the Son of Man spoken about in Daniel 7 and verse 13, the Messiah who receives an eternal kingdom from his heavenly Father. When he says that, this is an affirmation. Jesus flips the switch that would set his death and resurrection in motion. There's no turning back from this point. The greatest injustice, the evil and evil the world will ever know is about to unfold. And verse 65 says, And the high priest tore his robes and said he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is, who is the one who hit you? But oddly enough, as the cross becomes inevitable at this point, and the Jews in the room are mocking him, God uses their evil for immediate and eternal good. Kind of break that down into two sub-points. He uses it for good, for immediate and eternal good. He uses it for immediate good in that by mocking Jesus and throwing his own words back in his face, they have the effect of ministering joy and comfort to Jesus as he stares down the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And as they hurled abuse, and you see them just hurling abuse at him and threatening his life, they were in effect holding the coming joy of Christ in front of him like a mirror. Soon he was going to be vindicated. Soon the temple of his body would be raised up. Soon sin and death would be dealt a mortal blow. God overruled their mocking in this scene to minister comfort to Jesus for his own benefit. But secondly, we see that it also ministers and accomplishes eternal good because from here, Jesus, we know, was hauled before Pilate and eventually taken to the cross where he suffered God's judgment in our place and rose again on the third day in victorious resurrection. Notice how Peter interprets their wicked actions in the book of Acts. In his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, can't deny this, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, which we said is just a Greek term to describe him as Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Their godless hatred nailed Jesus to a cross and in perfect harmony with the eternal plan and purposes of God, his suffering cleansed us from our sins. What men meant for evil, God used for eternal good. 
destroy this temple, Jesus said, and in three days I will raise it up. All they asked for was a sign. Man, did they get so much more. It unmasked the corruption and calling of it, his words unmasked the calling and corruption of every human heart. Just some thoughts for exhortation and application. First, beware of seeking additional grounds for proof when it comes to Christ and his word. Some people say, if there was more evidence, I'd believe. You probably have, maybe that's even been you at some point in your life. If I, if I can just have more evidence, I can believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. You have to understand, you don't need more evidence. No one needs more evidence. The Gospels are full of eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life, his preaching. To ask for more proof reveals not a desire to believe, but a desire to justify your unbelief. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that's what we must do. Secondly, Rejection today might reappear to seal your fate tomorrow. And this is just a reality of it. Rejection today might reappear to seal your fate tomorrow. Do not delay waiting for a stronger conviction about Jesus. You're holding on to the truth of God's word and not dealing with it in your heart. That may not burst back in the future to save you, but to condemn you. Not months or years, maybe months or years from now, it will pop up to seal your fate for eternal judgment like it did for those at Jesus' trial before Caiaphas. Paul says today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ today. Don't delay. Thirdly, God's word is an inexhaustible well of truth. Humble yourself and trust in it. The scriptures are true. They are trustworthy. And as we're going to see next week, they are prophetically accurate. I mean, as we look at Isaiah 53, can you not see how every single detail is fulfilled in Christ? You cannot unsee that. You cannot unsee that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what, what the Lord has spoken. God's word is true, though every man be a liar. It is absolutely trustworthy, and we must bow before it. And thirdly, fourthly, we must acknowledge Jesus' claims and rejoice. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And that's exactly what he did. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, meaning Adam, but by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Because he lives, we will live. And Jesus' resurrection gives those of us who have been called by God a confident hope that there is an eternal weight of glory for those who persevere through what Paul calls momentary light affliction in this life. Go back to Isaiah 53, and this is where we're going to end and kind of set the stage for next week. This is where I said, Philip kind of walked all over my sermon this morning in equipping hour, if you were part of that. In chapter 52, the beginning of this servant song in verse 13, you see Isaiah describing the Lord's servant, this man 
who would bring Israel back. And he says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will do well. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That looks back to Isaiah 6, where Jesus is seen in that throne room. Uh, his incarnate glory, he is high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. So we see great exaltation. But in the very next verse, what do you see? But you were, people were astonished at you, my people. Just as they were astonished at you, Israel, in all of your affliction and, and your oppression, he says, in the same way, so his appearance was marred more than any other man in his form, more than the sons of men. And so we have this, this tension between an exalted servant and an abhorrable, wicked, uh, or at least he appears to be, uh, uh, as he says later on, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And you say, how does this tension get resolved? It, get res it gets resolved in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, it is his exaltation comes through his suffering. And that is what we see. When they said at the beginning, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? It, it, it's, it's a rhetorical question. Does anybody believe that the Messiah would be this? And so when Jesus came, all of that was fulfilled. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We did not esteem him. But we understand now, on this side of the cross, what it was that he was doing. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of that comes to life in bodily form. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And that's exactly what he did. We'll see all those connections hopefully more clearly next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who sifts and separates. You are a God who calls and you are a God who condemns. And you are a righteous God in all that you do. Lord, we pray that none would delay. If there's any here this morning who have not trusted you, have not come all the way to the, the place of saving faith, may you draw their hearts and change lives. Lord, set them on a trajectory of belief that they might see and rejoice in your day when that day comes. And Lord, we pray that we would be bold and courageous as we preach this message. Help us to trust in it and rejoice that though we were like those who are afflicted, uh, who, who, who saw you and scoffed that you have brought us out of darkness into the light. Help us to love you more. Help us to, to cling to your word in, in simple childlike faith. For your honor and for your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.